Are Bible-believing, born-again Christians good for America? Are faithful followers of Jesus good for China, for Russia, for India, Nigeria, Iran? It's not a hard question for us to answer, but it is a hard question for unbelievers to answer. It's a complicated question as far as they're concerned. For those that do not know Christ in a saving way, that have not been filled with the Spirit of God and baptized in the Spirit through conversion, they don't really know how to answer that question. Not on any large scale. God's people have always had a complicated relationship with their unsaved neighbors and governing authorities. Most governments through the centuries have been willing to tolerate us as long as we behave, and certainly as long as we mind our own business. Well, we want to behave. Our mission is not to overtake governmental structures and impose our will on nations, although some accuse us of that. But Jesus, our Master, called us to respect governing authorities. We are to obey the laws of the land. We are to pay taxes. We are to love our neighbors, and we're to prioritize their interests. This is our calling. But it's that mind-your-own-business business. That's a little bit of a problem. It doesn't work so well for the followers of Jesus to mind their own business, to stay out of things to not speak. Our Lord commissioned us indeed to proclaim the life-transforming power of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So when any culture or governing authority demands that we stop speaking God's truth or that we disobey God's will, we say no and we swim against the current. So how can we be surprised when unbelievers don't really know quite how to handle us? We're not bad people in some ways, but we have this resistant streak. And we insist on carrying forward the message of Christ that they don't like. So are Christians good for America? Well, we're law-abiding, tax-paying, socially responsible, community-building citizens in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And yet... We seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. This agenda conflicts with the broader beliefs and desires and purposes unbelievers wish to shape our culture. And so they tend to lash out at God's people. Sometimes it's a little more than grumbling. We might read of it here in the newspapers, see it in the news at night, or sense it at work or in school, just grumbling, just, just those people, what's wrong with them? Sometimes they lash out with deadly hostility. But never does that resistance go away. It may go dormant for a while, but it never goes extinct. Since the day that Abram was called as father of God's chosen nation, Israel, since the day Christ's followers became the church, after Jesus' death and resurrection, after His ascension into heaven, God's people have advanced His kingdom against the current of man's kingdom. 
That current flows in the opposite direction, and we come to this realization and must come to grips with it. There seems to be no whiff of this reality in the first three chapters of Ezra. As we continue to work our way through this book, we come to the fourth chapter, and it's one of the reasons that we work through books of the Bible, because it brings us to all kinds of topics that don't feel very good. It brings us to consider things we may not consider on our own. That who signed up for this? Who wanted to come today and hear that we live against the stream of this world? But we do. And we need to continue to remind ourselves of it. So as we make our way back to Ezra chapter 4, this is the reality check. In chapters 1 and 2, the initial response and return of tens of thousands of Israelites to the land has come. God has disciplined Israel for her fidelity to Him, for her infidelity rather to Him, with 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And now King Cyrus says, it's time to go back. I will free you to go back to the land. It's a stunning development. God's people back to God's promised land. Then as we get to chapter 3 of Ezra, the altar is rebuilt on the holy hill in Jerusalem and the foundations of the temple are set in place. And we remember Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. The fortunes have been restored. And we are like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. These are the Israelites coming back now to the land after the discipline is over. After this long captivity in Babylon, now coming back to the holy hill, they set the foundations of the temple. They build the altar again so that sacrifices can there be offered. And Ezra 1 through 3 is filled with that, the sweet fragrance of that dream come true. But then we come to Ezra 4. And Ezra 4 is reality check time. It's a reality check that God's people live in a resistant world. We're reminded that glorifying God is always spiritual warfare, always has been, and it always will be until we meet Christ. So as chapter 3 closes, God's people are celebrating the newly constructed foundations of God's temple in Jerusalem. There are tears, and I think there are tears of sorrow as they recognize this temple's not what the previous one was. They recognize in the stream of salvation history this is a concern, but there is more sound of joy and rejoicing at the end of chapter 3 as people realize God is at work here in Israel. And as those foundations are laid, and as there is this celebration that echoes down through the valleys that cut their way through this hill, we come then to chapter 4 and back to reality. Everything else is reality, but there's another side of it, and here it is. We read, first of all, the opposition during the reign of Cyrus to the Israelites now return to the land. This isn't what we want to read. This is what we want to think about. It's not what they wanted to face. But here it is. 
Verse 1 of chapter 4, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, I'll just stop just for a moment there, Judah and Benjamin, of course, are these returning Israelites, referred to this way because the, they were mostly from the southern kingdom, and then there are these adversaries, and we stop there and say the Jews have adversaries? The king of Persia is on their side. The king of Persia himself has said they can come back here and is even supplying on some level for them security and materials and access to material. They got adversaries? Here it is. Now the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel, the leader of the Israelites, and the heads of the fathers' houses, the other officials, and said to them, let us build with you. Now, they're adversaries saying, let us build with you. For we worship your God, as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. This um, graphic will be helpful for those who have really good vision, less for others, till we get a screen that's about eight miles wide. I don't know quite how to do this, but we'll, we'll watch through this. Ezra Haddon, there in Assyria, has sent these people back to the land. He sent them back to the land before the Israelites ever went to Babylon, sent them back into the northern kingdom as he repositioned people through his conquests. So the Assyrian Empire, now completely gone, but the, under the Assyrian Emperor, Esarhaddon, these are sent back, particularly to the area of Samaria, but to the north of Judah and Benjamin. So these people have been here a long time. We've been here, our ancestors have been here the whole time you were in Babylon. We've been in the land, in one sense they may say, subtly, longer than you have. At least you who now who have returned. And so they claim, we notice here also in these first two verses, they claim to worship Yahweh, and in a certain sense they do. The problem is that they worship God along with a bunch of others. God is one God that they worship. They worship many gods. Theirs was a syncretistic religion observing bits and pieces of varying religions, often with mutually conflicting ideas, but never permitting God to be God alone. So yes, they worship God. Yes, they had been in the land, and they were there legitimately on some level. But what about this idea that we serve the same Lord? How do we answer that? How do we look at it? I think the key here in these first two verses is that phrase, let us build with you. Let us build with you. Now, isn't that nice of them? I mean, how could you have more kindly neighbors? They want to lend a hand. They want to help us rebuild God's temple. How splendid is that? It's wonderful. The welcome wagon has pulled up, and it's loaded down with construction supplies and eager neighbors. Let us build with you. Well, at this point a leader in Israel acts like a leader. And we see that in verse 3. 
as Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. Does that sound a little offensive to you? Believe me, that's how they took it. You have nothing to do in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. They kind of address them on two levels, and we might say, that's not very charitable. These people just want to help, don't they? I mean, why do they assume this negative position? Well, they don't really want to help. What they want to, in, to do is impose their influence on the worship, and what they want to do is to control Thankfully, Judah's leaders are wise enough to discern the spiritual danger into, in, of this ecumenical proposal. And so, in the first half of verse 3, on the worship side of the equation, they made it clear that this proposal suggested an unholy partnership. On the governmental side of the issue, the second half of verse 3, Cyrus's decree said nothing about other people joining the Jews for this rebuilding project. And so they don't want to compromise anything with Cyrus. In some sense, then, they're being very, uh, very careful to walk within the lines. But what we need to recognize and what is instructive to us on our side, this government being long gone and this situation being long gone, is that one of the most insidious and pervasive attacks of Satan is the world's appeal to partner with believers. This is a theme that is pervasive in the Bible. Unbelievers will desire to partner with you on many levels. And we need to respond as God's people to that appeal and recognize that it is insidious. It is never going to end well. It's not something we can do. Our task in this world is to be faithful to the cause of Christ, faithful to His truth. It's not simply to be good neighbors, as people would define it. And so, I, we don't talk about it often. It doesn't pertain to the church very often, but I, I do believe it's important for you to know that there is a routine over the years, a routine appeal for our church to partner with unbelievers in worship. There are those that have appealed to our church to join in services where we would worship God even though we have radically different views of who God is and how salvation is gained. The leadership of this church, with, I hope, a level of grace and respect, says no. And on another level, closer to home, really, there is a part that we all play in this process. There is constantly an appeal on the part of unbelievers to identify with our church and to worship with us and be part of the life of this assembly. Now, I need to nuance this carefully because we want unbelievers among us. We welcome them here. We desire for them to observe our worship, to participate in it on the level that they're able, to see our life together as a church. This is crucial. We want to be as welcoming as we can to those who do not know Christ as Savior. But where do we fight this issue? The appeal to become one in worship is 
addressed at the level of membership. And this is one of the reasons why we pursue membership with such care. It is not so that everybody is voting the right way and we have more numbers of people in our assembly. In fact, our membership process keeps our numbers lower than they might be otherwise. What it is is a desire for pure worship. It's a desire for pure worship that those who would say, I am a member of the body of Christ as far as we're able to know that they truly are. So that we don't have a worship that is syncretistic and mixed, believers and unbelievers acting as if they worship the same God together. So this is a, a process that we're all involved in. As we welcome members into this assembly, as we discern the testimony of faith of those who come, it's why we take our time and why we are careful. Now, it's very different than the specifics that we read here, but there's the same connection that the people of God need to be a pure people as they worship. They go into all the world, they touch people throughout the world, but they cannot join in worship with those who know not Christ as Savior. And this leads to a lot of hurt feelings, to great offense when it comes to our church not linking up with some other churches in certain endeavors. It leads to some hard statements. I one time said to some within our community that were pressuring me to be involved and our church to be involved, we will not pray with those that we need to pray for. And I meant by that prayers of salvation. We're not going to pray with those that we need to pray for in the area of salvation. We need to be thoughtful along these lines, respectful along these lines, and I think we have a beautiful example of that kind of respect. There is a backbone in the leaders of these Israelite leaders. No, we're not going to worship this way, but we will walk. And I think just everything they say about Cyrus here is a gracious way of saying, technically speaking, this doesn't work anyway. But there is a stand for holiness that is taken at this point. Well, how do you think that goes over? Some might certainly object. I can hear them today, and they've talked to us about our position in a very different setting. Well, I mean, should they just meant well? These poor people, they, they must have hung their heads, and they must have walked away so discouraged that they couldn't join with the building project. Is that how they respond? Notice verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Okay, you won't let us build with you? Then we're going to do everything we can to stand up to you. They never were sincere. They simply wanted to control and they wanted to invade the worship of God's people. The strategy of cooperation did not work, so these adversaries of God's people tried to, to try a strategy of intimidation. If you don't want to play nice, you won't let us join you, then we will threaten your very existence. And they discouraged, you see the, the word there, they discouraged the Israelites. There's a beautiful idiom in the Hebrew text here. They're, they're, they caused their hands to drop. They made their hands go limp. 
And there's the opposite idiom that we find. Uh, you remember David when he was so discouraged, he, he was sure he was going to be killed by Saul. Jonathan came, found him in the woods, and what did he do? He strengthened his hand in God. Beautiful phrase. He lifted up his hands. He put strength in his hands. He encouraged him. This is the opposite. They caused their hands to go limp. They were building the temple, but these adversaries so discouraged them that their hands went limp. They sought to terrify God's people, to intimidate them, to leave off rebuilding God's temple. And the temple was so vital. It was vital to Israel's worship. It was vital to the glory of God's name in that area. And the adversary stood up and said, no way, not going to build it. And further, these enemies in verse 5, we read that they bribe counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So we have Cyrus, just pictured here again on the map, the one that sends the Israelites back. So from uh, the Persian Empire, having conquered Babylon, having conquered Assyria, uh, in, uh, having conquered this region, he sends them back to the Promised Land. But Cyrus, during his entire reign and up to the reign of Darius, who takes um, not technically takes over, but essentially takes over for him. There's a guy in between. It's another story. But uh, as he takes over, Darius, that whole time, this whole time of his reign, about an eight-year reign, they are sending, hiring people to go back to Persia and talk to Cyrus and say, these are bad people. Don't let them build this temple. I mean, th this, is, this isn't fun. This is one of those things you just don't want to deal with. All that God has done, all that God has opened up, and you know that all the time there's people beating a path back to Persia to badmouth you to Cyrus, the one who let you come. The net effect was that the Jews were discouraged. They were probably fearful. Just, should we keep building? Should we keep going forward here? Why build a temple that's going to get taken down? When facing opposition for our faith, we have a strong tendency to overestimate the power of Satan's people and to underestimate God's power. And that's what the Israelites were facing right here as they became discouraged and left off the work through the whole period. Now, at verse 6, the author hits pause at the end of verse 5. And what we're going to, we'll go through it fairly quickly, but verses 6 through 23 is really all a thematic interruption, kind of a grand parenthesis that simply looks at this issue of opposition. Not just this moment, but it continues throughout the days ahead, and it's really essential for us to understand chapters 5 and 6. So just stop everything in the days of Darius there in verse 5, and now he's going to take us into another level of opposition, that is during the reign of Ahasuerus. So we've come to Darius, we'll come back to him, but here we have Ahasuerus. These uh, names aren't being like technically located right on that spot necessarily, but they're just uh, saying here's the next ruler, and that's the one we're dealing with now down, um, down the row. You see on the chart the uh, uh, table up at the top. We've come to Ahasuerus. 
And we read in verse 6 that in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. We don't know anything more about it. It just says that. There was another accusation. It was another challenge. This is the man who married Esther, uh, the Jewess. This is uh, his, her husband. Uh, we know nothing more about the attempt, but simply that there was a relentless attack. That's an, a, sec, a, a different time, a different attack. And then we come to a third in, under Artaxerxes, verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes. So looking at yet another king in Persia that's being addressed by these opponents, telling, them how, telling the king how bad these Jews are to stop their work. And we have a first letter in verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Mithridath, and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and it was translated. That's all we know about that. But again, it's a slanderous attack. It's meant to influence them not to respond. And then we have a second letter to Artaxerxes that's described in verses 8 and following. Verse 8, Raham, the commander, And Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rehem the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, that is a city, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, lots of people, the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. Here's who we are. We're really important. Lots of guys. Osnapper, by the way, is Ashurbanipal is his name. Do we have? Yeah, we have him here. I'd go with Ashurbanipal. That sounds a lot better than Osnapper. But um, at any rate, he uh, is the Assyrian king going back in time. And now the author gets back, verse 11, to kind of get back to the letter. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. Now, we're looking here at a really ancient text. It's pretty exciting. It's in English, of course, translated. But uh, this is a very ancient text that's been preserved in the text of Ezra. Notice what it says. We'll read it. Verse 11. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, that's trans-Euphrates, so the Euphrates River in Babylon, everything leading up to the, to the great, uh, Mediterranean Sea. Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. The Jews who have come up from you to us, it's not from him personally, though it could be, It might reference Ezra's return at a later date, but at any rate, they're finishing the walls. Now we're jumping ahead in time. You can see on the the, uh, uh, timeline there that we are jumping ahead in time, and we're dealing here now with the construction of the walls of Jerusalem. Empires devise all kinds of ways to move money from your pocket to theirs, and when that gets challenged, they get really troubled. And these guys know that, and so they say what they do in verse 13. These people are not going to pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. That got Artaxerxes' attention. 
Verse 14, now because we eat the salt of the palace, that means they're connected. It could be by covenant or actual uh, provision. It is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Boy, aren't they noble people. Therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the books of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We're loyal citizens and we want you to know these are bad people. So verse 16, we, we make it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. That's about as overstated as you could make it. Under David and Solomon, it could hardly be claimed that, they had, that there was uh, control over this whole region, but certainly not with these people. There's no king, there's no army there is not even a capital city with a good wall around it. But, he's, but they're seeking to stir up fear and to be sensational. To say you're going to lose all your money, you're going to lose all of your control. And remember that Israel is a, is a very major land bridge. You're going to lose your way to Egypt. So fear these people and please stop them. The king, verse 17, sent an answer to Rehem the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now, the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. It's been translated so that he got it and understood it, knew what was, being, what was happening. Verse 19, and I made a decree, and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and this, that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. A decree is made by me leaves some room for the possibility that he may rethink this on further information. And he does not give anybody the right to demolish the work that has been accomplished on Jerusalem's walls. But verse 22 demonstrates how the enemies of the Jews have influenced the king's fear. Look at it. They got through. He issues the decree. He says, take care not to be slack in this matter why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? These people are a threat. They're dangerous. So, verse 23. Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Can you see them? Waving their scroll. They can't wait to get there. You guys got to stop. The king said so. And they bring force against him, which means they had force. It wasn't just words. They had force, but now they have the king's authority to force the stoppage on the walls of Jerusalem. This isn't easy. So the author has strung together several narratives. You can see again on the timeline the length of time 
that this opposition is taking place from the days of Cyrus to the days of Artaxerxes. During all of these reigns, there is this constant, incessant opposition to doing what God wants them to do. Having strung together that series, the author now returns to the days of Darius in verse 24. Then would normally mean this comes next. Here it does not. Here it is pointing back to verse 5. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. God, at this point, raises up prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to exhort the Jews to rebuild God's temple. Depending on how the chronology is worked out, the returned exiles lived in the land for at least 16 years before the temple construction was taken up in earnest. Now, one reason God permitted them to return to the land was that they might worship Him at His temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember what he put in their hands when they headed back? He put the vessels that were part of the worship at the temple in their hands and said, go back, build the temple, reestablish my worship there. God was in this. But as Haggai stresses, as the prophet stresses, they were content when they got back to build their own homes, but afraid to build God's. That's how it works in this world. Unbelievers don't really have much of a problem with you doing the same kinds of things that they're doing. Go ahead and build your house. But when you come to building the temple of God and making a statement that God reigns, now they have problems. And they met great resistance. So they were going to need to act with determination against even stronger currents of worldly opposition They would need God's help. They could not do this in their own strength. Annihilation was a distinct possibility. They would need courage. They could no longer permit those who oppose God's agenda to discourage them from building. And the prophet stands up and says, where are you getting here? By putting ahead of God's temple your own houses, you're not getting anywhere. It's time to turn back to the Lord and to build. God's people had to step deeper into and with greater resolve against the strong current of worldly opposition. And I think as we filter this ancient text and look back upon it, it has a lot to say about our identity. We must continue to come to terms with the fact that we inhabit a world that is unwelcoming to people who seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. And if we structure our Christian communities, we structure our Christian families in such a way that we don't have any opposition, well then we're being good little Americans minding our own business. And we need to really ask some hard questions. Through the ages, the kingdom of fallen man has been relatively comfortable. As long as God's people mind their own business, and don't oppose the worldly agenda. But our calling is to spread the good news of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ into all the world. And as the temple in Jerusalem once stood as witness to the glory of God, 
So now we, as the new temple of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to go into all the world and shine the light of the gospel to say that God is glorious and that all must turn to Him in repentant faith. We're called to defend the truth of God, the truth that He's revealed to His people, and when necessary to say, we must obey God rather than man. When man seeks to trump God, we say, no, I have a higher throne. We must remember that such an agenda is at cross purposes with man's kingdom, and so we want nothing but the health, the prosperity of the cities we inhabit on this globe. We should be good for America. We seek to be law-abiding citizens and with good deeds to bless our communities, to bless our nation, to bless our world to be a positive force of salt in this culture. Yet there will be times when our unsaved neighbors and unbelieving governments determine that Bible-believing, born-again Christians are not good for America. And they're beginning to do it, aren't they? Just this last week, there's been sermons subpoenaed to look at content of what's being preached in Christian churches. That's not going to go away. The book of Ezra is so helpful to us. It's so helpful to us. It tells us we can trust God. We can trust God to enable us to represent Him and, so, and to supply the courage to do so against the currents of opposition. We must remember that there is no other way forward. We may wish there was. We may not like resistance. We don't. But there's no way around it. I don't know the history well at all. I just know the cinema. But in 2008, the movie Defiance told the story of four Jewish brothers in Nazi-occupied Eastern Europe. They escaped into the Belarusian forest where they joined Russian resistance fighters. It was an unhappy connection, but it provided them some safety for a while and filled with all kinds of trials and death and difficulty. But the primary challenge wasn't relating to Russian troops and avoiding Nazi troops and being Jews and not being accepted by either side. The problem was that over time, 1,000 non-combatants joined them in the forest. And they had to try to find a way to feed them and find a way to protect them and find a way to deal with these people. It was a horrible, horrible setting. In the depths of winter, sickness, death, trial, difficulty, and then everywhere, armies coming here and there and crossing, and death was with them all the time. But these non-combatants had escaped extermination at the hands of the Nazis. This was the best they could do. And these brothers were left to try to develop a makeshift community. One scene pictures the loss of two of the community members, their burial, and a rabbi. Think of all that's going on in his life. Think of all that's going on in the history of the Israelites. He speaks for God's people. Those, I think, who do not know the Lord, but those who have been chosen by him. 
Listen to what he says. He prays, Merciful God, we commit our friends Benzion and Krensky to your care. We have no more prayers, no more tears. We have run out of blood. Choose another people. We have paid for each of your commandments. We have covered every field and stone with ashes. Sanctify another land. Choose another people. Teach them the deeds and the prophecies. Grant us but one more blessing. Take back the gift of our holiness. And all around, nod in agreement. It's a beautiful prayer, a beautiful scene, and a horrifying one all at once. We know what they mean. Unbelieving Jews, having rejected their Messiah, certainly we would not agree with them theologically on that, but we know what they mean. Choose somebody else. And there comes a time when every genuine believer hits that wall. The desire to wiggle free from our calling to be God's distinctive people. You have been there. You may be there right now. I don't want this. The temptation may come from the world's relentless pressure to get you to conform to its immoral agenda to join in with the peers, to be like everybody else, to join with the culture and its priorities. That may be where you hit that wall. Choose somebody else. Teach somebody else your commands and prophecies. The pressure may come from the world's relentless pressure to adopt its philosophies and its theories. And you may see, I want to be with them. I don't like this distinctive thinking. It may come, as in Ezra 4, from hostile forces bent on silencing your cause. And we've read this week again of many believers who have faced death, who have given their lives in recent days to stand up to the opposition There's all kinds of sources. Whatever the source, we face the temptation to fold. We face the temptation to go limp, to curl up, to hide, to shut our mouths, and in the end to loosen our grip on God's truth and faithfulness to our calling. Our hope in all of this on this side of the cross is so much more glorious. We have so much more to cling to. Our hope is to look to our Savior who stood up against the opposition, who did not join in with those who were pulling down His people, but who stood for the truth and became obedient unto the death of a cross. He took the ultimate stand against the powers of darkness, and we are the better for it. He was faithful unto death, proving that the powers of God are able to save And He delivered us from death in His death. 
He died alone in order to break that power of sin and how full and rich and thankful we are that Christ stood against the powers of darkness and won. And his church labors then throughout this world to fill up his sufferings. That is to complete the agonies of the advance of the gospel until Christ has claimed everyone that is his. Every sheep that is lost that belongs to him will enter his fold. And until then, we suffer for that cause. We stand up to that resistance. And involved in that revolution will be those who have endured to the end. Standing for that truth, standing for righteousness, refusing to be anything but a holy people, no matter the cost. Holy people are distinctive people. And we can come to the place where we say, I don't want that distinctiveness. Or we can come to the place where we recognize this story is not over yet. And for those who suffer with Christ, for those who stand and face the resistance of a hostile world, there will be a conclusion, there will be a finality, and on that day, we will rejoice to stand before our Savior as holy people. People that He has made distinctive unto Himself by His death and by His resurrection. And so for those who say, I don't really want to identify with Christians, I don't like some of these exclusive teachings, I don't like this faith, I would say to you, we understand. But let's also say, where, where on this earth do you find such advertising? Everybody who advertises tells you all the wonderful things that are going to happen, how your life's going to be so much better. Where do you find the advertising that says, take up your cross and follow me? And do you not think that there is something in that calling that leads thousands upon thousands of people throughout this earth to lay down their life and take up that cross and for many of them indeed to die not because some other gun shot them before theirs went off, but because they have stood there with their arms open in love and laid down their life to die for Christ. There's got to be something in that you should chase. Where are those who peddle the worldly philosophies of our day that are willing to die for them? But what I would say to you is there is truth in advertising, but there's so much more to it. There is something of value in reconciliation with God and pursuing a life of distinctiveness in relationship to Him that is more valuable than life. And it's free. It's already been purchased. And I would encourage you to come to Christ and to trust Him as your Savior. He's paid the penalty of sin and He's defeated death. Come today. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, as our time has slipped away and we could linger 
so much longer and indeed plan to do so in our smaller groups this afternoon. I pray that you would help us to discern the relationships between your people under the old covenant and your people today as participants in the blessings of the new covenant. I pray that we would recognize what is ours, that we would rejoice in the richness of the life that is willing to be laid down and death and willing to die so that your truth is spread and that our faithfulness to you is maintained. And we pray here earnestly for those believers today, those men and women throughout this world who hold tenaciously to their faith in you and who are willing to give their lives for it. I pray, Father, that you would draw them to yourself, encourage them, uplift them, and indeed protect them. But we recognize that life is not worth holding on to at all cost. And so we say thank you that you've made us a holy people. We want to remain a holy people, and we want to cling to our faith in you and our confidence in the fulfillment of your promises more than we cling to life itself. Help us to take up the cross and to follow Jesus, wherever that takes us, wherever that leads us. Not being nasty, not being obnoxious, being faithful citizens. But Lord, I pray that you would make Eden Baptist Church and your people who claim your name to be faithful to the end, no matter what the resistance. I pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen. Please stand with me. And just for a few moments in silence, let's reflect upon...